live from Cumbria, this is The Twilight Show with Kayleigh Clark. Good afternoon, welcome to The Twilight Show on a beautiful sunny Sunday. This evening we're going to be joined by Anshuman Mondal from the Uni of East Anglia and we're going to be uh, continuing with the conversation on diversity and decolonisation of the English classroom. Stay tuned, it's going to be a good one. Live from Cumbria, this is The Twilight Show with Kayleigh Clark on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. Like I say, a beautiful day here in Cumbria. I hope you weren't caught out by the clocks going forward. I wasn't, but that doesn't mean I was any less tired this morning. So I will certainly be getting um, an earlier night than usual on a Sunday um, to catch up on sleep before I do my usual 5 a.m. get up in the morning. So like an absolute pro, um, Anshuman is already waiting. So we will just get straight into the conversation. Um, are you there, Anshuman? Uh, yes, I am. Yes, hello, Hi. Kayleigh. Hi there, loud and clear. That's great. Thank you very much for, for joining us this evening and giving up um, an hour and a half of your, I'm sure, very um, busy Sunday to join us on Teachers Talk Radio today. Well, it's Mother's Day, of course, today. So um, we, we've, had a, we've, had a, we've had a lovely day out at the seaside. Um, uh, the weather wasn't as great as it is now, but uh, yeah, it's been, uh, it's, been, it's been fun. But it was a successful day and that's what matters on Mother's Day, doesn't it? That's all that matters, especially when your kids are only 11 and 9, and basically you're responsible for it. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'm very glad to hear that. Ho hopefully, um, yeah, we, the, uh, the day will only continue to get better. And thank you very much for, um, like I say, giving up your time this afternoon and, and uh, allowing me to take you away from your family time. That's so, <laughs> thank you. So, um, obviously, this, this conversation feels like it's been quite um, a while in the making. Um, you and I sort of arranged this date quite a while ago, so I've, I've been very much looking forward to the date rolling round when we can have this conversation. Mm. Um, so, I suppose, let's start off with an introduction about yourself. Rather than me tell everyone about you, why don't you um, just give a, an introduction and, and give us a bit about your background and, and what you do at the University of East Anglia? Thanks, Kelly. Um, yeah, I'll be brief. Uh, I, I'm a professor in modern literature at the University of East Anglia, and um, I've been in higher education now teaching English literature for 22 years. So I started around about uh, 1999, 2000. I'm sorry, that's my dog. She's barking at the moment, so uh, you have to excuse her. Don't um, worry about it. Uh, I, uh, I'm a specialist in what you'd, uh, you'd call post-colonial literature in English. And that was a field that was taking off. When I was uh, at university in Edinburgh in uh, the early 90s, I, I was there from 1991 to 95, um, what we currently talk about is, uh, you know, in terms of uh, diversifying or decolonizing the curriculum, none of that was really there. Um, it wasn't really there in any of the universities that, uh, that I could have gone to at the time. And uh, sometime in my third year as, as an undergraduate, I uh, was given a lecture by, uh, by one of the lecturers on a, on a text which uh, 
has shaped my entire life, really. And that text was a book called Orientalism by a, 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 an Arab-American scholar called Edward Said. It's a very famous book and a, a field defining in many ways because this area known as post-colonial studies was only just kind of happening at the time. It was just emerging in the United States around about that time and kind of just filtering over to the UK. Um, and that was a seminal moment in my life. Um, I, without exaggeration, will say that uh, it probably changed my life because from that point on, I was thinking more and more about English literature as being of some relevance to me as opposed to something I just studied, which is what it was up to that point. And I was pretty good at it. Um, as you can imagine, somebody who becomes a professor of literature is probably quite good at reading texts and analysing them. You anyway, would hope, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you'd hope so, yes. Um, but it, it, uh, it, it, it gave me some reason other than simply getting a degree for being at university. Um, and I think that that's one of the motivating factors for what I'm doing at the moment. Um, some 20 years later, and it, it's taken that long, I think, and it's really worth reflecting, actually, how long it has taken for this moment to arrive, whereby in the wake of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020, mm -hmm. there was a real energy and drive at last to address some of the ways in which people of colour or uh, racialized minorities, as I prefer to call them, have been systematically marginalized within the uh, uh, higher education sector, but within my own field, uh, within English literature, uh, the ways in which you know, studies of, of literature, of texts by people, by racialized minorities, um, has also been systematically marginalized. Um, and in 2020, I started, along with colleagues at the University of East Anglia, where I'm based, um, and in particular, I must uh, say a big uh, shout out to my uh, colleagues on the decolonizing curriculum group there, um, who have taken forward this, this, uh, this agenda, if you like, of trying to overhaul some of these systematic ex exclusions. And we've been joined um, uh, right from the outset by some of the biggest organizations in higher education, English literature studies. So the Institute of English Studies, the uh, English Association and University English, as well as another association that I'm um, uh, still currently the chair of, or have been for the last seven years or so, uh, which is the Post-Colonial Studies Association. So. There's some real traction here at the moment because we've got um, some of the most sort of uh, biggest and representative organisations in the field trying to agitate and uh, for change within the sector. Fantastic. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you say that you've you've been working on this essentially for 20 years um, and it's only just really gaining momentum as a conversation about the fact that we, you know, a, I suppose, do we, and B, we do need to um, diversify the English curriculum a lot more than it is already. So just to start right at the very beginning, then you say your, um, you know, your obviously uh, your expertise is in the post-colonial period of literature. Mm -hmm. So if we were to put a date on that, what what period of time are we looking at in terms of what is considered post-colonial literature? 
Oh, there's a bit of debate about this. There's always debate about everything when it comes to scholars. Um, uh, some people take post-colonial to be any time from the sort of uh, moment at which kind of European colonial imperialism sort of emerged around about 400 years ago um, to uh, those who see post-colonial as, uh, as much more in terms of the, uh, the, 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 the 19th and 20th century, really. Mm -hmm. um, right. Interestingly, none of us actually take it literally insofar as just talking simply about that period after decolonization or formal decolonization in, uh, uh, you know india was the first of the british uh, imperial uh, possessions to decolonize and become independent in uh, 1947 uh, uh, india and pakistan of course together and then there was a, 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 a sri lanka and then a, a wave of further decolonizing movements uh, throughout the British Empire, I'm just talking about the British Empire here, but you must yeah. remember, of course, that there's the, there were the French empires as well, and uh, the German, the Italian, and so on, uh, with the Belgian empires. So there was a there was, you know, by of course the French and the British were the largest, but uh, um, you know this was a European phenomenon, mm -hmm. and um, none of us really take that sort of literal sense in which post-colonial means after empire very seriously and there's one very good reason for that which is that really the world isn't after empire in that's in the, anything other than purely the formal legal sense um the structure uh, the hierarchical structure of the world order if you like is pretty much premised on the imperial structures uh, of uh, the west and the rest from uh, from the colonial period it's what we technically call neo-colonialism mm -hmm. uh, or neo-imperialism and uh, the main point to be had there is that we're not post-colonial in any true sense if you're talking about post as being after imperialism and colonialism so the period in which we live in now is we're, we're living in the in, in the fallout the washout or whatever you want to call it um, of that immensely important historical period which has reshaped the world, uh, reformed it, restructured it. And uh, really, in many ways, the, those structures are still the governing structures of the world today. So that's what post-colonial studies uh, is, 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 is the study of that entire kind of movement from the beginning of uh, the nascent beginnings of European imperialism uh, in the early modern period, right through to its heyday in the 19th and early 20th century through its decline but still nevertheless persistence in the contemporary world so that's what we mean by post-colonial studies and it's something that we've that has been part of english studies now as i pointed out for about 30 odd years uh and i was probably one of the uh earlier generations i'm not quite the first there was a, a generation of scholars ahead of me um uh, who sort of paved the way but I was probably one of the scholars, uh, a generation of scholars who benefited from what was then the kind of institutionalization of post-colonial studies within higher education uh, English departments. So you'd get these, you'd get these uh, uh, scholars like myself being appointed as junior lecturers and so on around about the, the late 90s, early 2000s. And uh, often, and this is this is where the limitations, I guess, of that particular kind of movement was, 
because often we were asked to shoulder the burden of teaching virtually the entire non-Western world to our students mm -hmm. uh, by ourselves. Yeah. Um, often the modules we were uh, assigned to teach were optional modules. Often they were uh, marginalised. Uh, there might have been texts that were marginalised in, 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 you know, maybe tacked on to the end of, uh, of uh, core modules or big first-year modules and things like that. And I think that that's the difference really between what we're talking about now in terms of decolonization and what uh, was happening uh, has been happening uh, uh, since postcolonial studies emerged on the scene, which is this kind of difference between diversification, which is, you know, a few, few black and Asian writers uh, mm -hmm. dropped in here, there, here and there to add a bit of spice and a bit of local color. Um, and I'm using those terms deliberately, of course, as a, in, a, in a slightly ironic way. Um, but uh, uh, the difference with what we plan to do with, with the decolonizing agenda is to actually think about the structure in which those writers are put at the margins. You know, they might be sort of picked off as one representative writer speaking for or uh, standing in for black and Asian populations throughout the world. Uh, that's an incredible burden for one writer to carry and it's an incredible yeah, burden right. for one scholar to carry as well if you're the only one in the department who's trying to, trying to teach the students these these things yeah i mean just listening to you talk there i mean i think you've, you've given a very uh, concise summary of everything that it covers but that is a huge variety of content that you are looking at there isn't it so how do you actually I mean, I suppose, because like you say, you're coming at this from a higher education perspective, and, and I'm a, a secondary English teacher. Um, but of course, um, even at primary level, I suppose that the question that I would be asking you now is, is quite similar, um, is that how how do you actually, how, how is the higher education side of this area of study looking at um, this from the point of view of, of the teachers who are, who are ultimately wanting to teach this and wanting to have this make these changes in their classroom um what what are you finding is the you know what areas of focus do you have in terms of actually changing the way that we do things in schools on a you know at the, at the national curriculum level yeah so th there are a couple of things that you need to sort of say before you can even really answer that question yeah and one is that uh that uh teachers don't have the freedom that we have in higher education Mm -hmm. um, you have a national curriculum, that national curriculum is shaped, if not dictated, by uh, uh, government at, at various levels and uh, exam boards. And uh, we don't have any of that. We, we as, as, as higher education teachers, we, there are, of course, pressures on the, on, uh, in terms of the structure of any given curriculum within any given university, but we are, self, we are pretty much autonomous units. Um, and we have the ability and the opportunity to change things more rapidly. Even, but having said that, uh, even even our change takes some time, um, especially with with the marketization of higher education. We have mm. advertised changes to the curriculum well in advance of the cohort, the students that can uh, that will actually take it. So we can't change midstream, as it were. We have to we have to plan two or three years ahead. Uh, anyway, so changes that we're putting in place now will only really sort of embed in two, three years later, which is a shame because two or three years is the length of a, an undergraduate degree for uh, for most uh, yeah. students. So, uh, you know, students 
are understandably, especially, you know, I think one thing I haven't said is, is how much we have been galvanized by this from our current generation of students who've come to university. And, and in our case at UEA, a generation of students who've literally, I mean, literally, because they wrote to us and said this, said, this isn't good enough. You know, we want to read more about the rest of the world. We want to hear different voices. We don't want to hear the same, encounter the same texts, the same voices that we've always had to encounter before. The mm. world is a big place and it's full of uh, different kinds of people and different kinds of cultures and all sorts of experiences that are not being captured in our degree. And we want better. And that is an incredibly powerful voice to have to respond to. And it was great for us who've been sort of plowing or some might say sort of knocking our heads against the wall for 20 odd years to suddenly find this, this really energized student body kind of pushing us through and, and, and demanding that we give them better. And that's brilliant. And, and, and is, is, is one of the most important sort of changes that I've encountered uh, uh, in the last few years. But what we can do is, I think, play that we have to play in terms of secondary school um, and primary school teachers. We have to be able to set the uh, the frameworks by which the discipline is kind of understood, um, because the the teachers that will be teaching are going to be English graduates, uh, English literature graduates. More often than not, they will come through university English departments, and it is by changing the university English landscape that we will be able to, as it were, put in place the educational structures that will eventually enable uh, teachers at secondary and primary level to embed some of these, uh, these perspectives and, and, and these ways of thinking into, the, into, the, into, the, uh, into their curriculum, albeit with a very, very, um, uh, uh, you know, within limitations, within the framework of limitations that they are able to do so, uh, given the national curriculum, given the ways in which the, the governments uh, uh, dictate that, that, that curriculum. And, and at the moment, of course, there's a, the, 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 uh, it, you know, I'm probably at liberty to say in a way that teachers aren't, there, are, there is a government that's, at, you know, if not actively hostile, then incredibly suspicious towards any of this. Um, because it, it doesn't really want to talk about some of the historical uh, structures and injustices that have determined, you know, mm. the, 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 the discipline. And I, I do actually want to point out to your listeners, it is, this is a matter of fact, this isn't an, a, a question of interpretation. English literature as a subject has its origins in the colonies. It was first con conceived and devised as a tool, as an instrument of colonial power in India. Back in 1835, Lord Macaulay um, swung the argument in favor of English language funded education um, at, uh, uh, in, in the governor, uh, in the um, uh, Bengal presidency in, 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 in India. Mm -hmm. um, and that then was adopted by the other two presidencies, Madras and Bombay. And uh, it was explicitly conceived by Macaulay that, the, uh, that without, as he called them, native collaborators, um, the British imperial mission in India would fail. 
So he, he, he said that he needed to create a class of interpreters, and I'm, and I'm quoting here, native in blood and color, but English in morals, tastes and opinions and everything else. Mm -hmm. And so it was explicitly conceived that English language education needed to be a kind of conduit of colonial power. Uh, and English literature as a subject was conceived within that framework. So the subject that we teach has its literal origins in colonialism. It's not a, a metaphorical thing. It's not just a, 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 a thing that we say, well, you know, Britain was the dominant world power and therefore yeah. that's how it's, how it's rooted in colonialism. It was and actually it, done so in, for, that, for that purpose. Yeah, and it's not just the study of books that we think you need to know about. It's actually there was a reason why the subject itself was introduced and, and delivered by educators. Um, right. Yeah, and, it, and it's, it's, an, it's incredibly, see, this, I've, I've said it, I say it many times, if I didn't teach English, I would teach history because I just find the whole background of this so fascinating to hear you talk um, about how it came about. And it's so much easier to understand how problematic this has become when you understand where it came from. But if I, if I can go to, 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 to just expand on that a little bit in that, obviously one of the, one of the big um, to hot topics of discussion at the moment with um, Dominic Raab's recent statement about giving free speech legal supremacy, mm -hmm. um, one of the, there's been a, a significant movement over the last, well, like you say, since George Floyd and, and Black, the Black Lives Matter movement, where we've had instances of, um, you know, statues being pulled down and 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 people, you know, um, sort of educational institutions being felt like they're being put under pressure to um, move away from names and figureheads who represented empire and colonization in favor of those who maybe represent a a more inclusive, diverse um, section of society, but what you're it, it sounds like what you're also saying is that we we have to acknowledge the problems if we are going to provide the solution so although we might not like what has happened in the you know we, we don't like talking about empire so much now and that was something i was going to ask is is that the you know i don't ever remember being explicitly taught about the british empire when i was at school it was kind of something that you know it was oh that was because we had an empire in india and then it and then you moved on the conversation very quickly um so if 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 we are to you know what what's your take on this idea of of almost you know ignoring the bits of our history that we don't like because we don't because they don't fit with the modern day narrative do you think that that is the way forward if we are actually going to make a positive change? Well, this is the this is the one of the great ironies at the moment of that discussion is that, uh, in the name of free speech, uh, we're told that we shouldn't, um, you know, say you know say that certain things can't be said. Uh, the you know people who are associated with. Uh, decolonizing such as myself are accused of being censorious and, and saying you know people can't speak their uh, you know preventing people from speaking their minds and so on and so forth uh, and then at the same time the government uh, finds itself unable to come to terms with uh, a meticulously researched historical report such as that produced by the National Trust about its properties and its and the properties and their links to, to colonialism now you know you can you any any person could could be too 
two minutes of serious thought and think about where these country houses came from and where the wealth for those country houses came from mm -hmm. and realize that the wealth for a lot of those country houses must have come from trade in slaves from sugar plantations in the caribbean and from overseas colonial possessions that is the uh, basis on which you know that glut of house building of these large country estates in the 18th and 19th century uh, 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 was based yeah now then the government suddenly doesn't like that and uh and uh, and starts accusing the 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 national trust of being woke and is you know you know the use of the word woke to me as a canary in the coal mine is people start bounding the use the uh, the word woke around that means that for me, they haven't anything better to say than simply to, to kind of, as it were, use this catch-all word as a, as, a, as a way of demonizing people who do want to speak about this history, who yeah. do want to say this has got to be part of the conversation because you mm. can't have this false narrative in which the British Empire went around spreading light and, and, and uh, uh, to benighted heathens and to you know uncivilized savages and so on. That is colonial ideology. That is exactly how it justified itself in the 19th century, in the 18th century, and so on. And that yeah. colonial ideology is deeply rooted in, not just incidentally related to, but deeply rooted in racism. Uh, and so if you're going to tackle racism, you have to tackle its relationship to colonialism. The two things cannot be separated. The, some people like to think that, you know, uh, racism was just a kind of incidentally bad part of colonialism. No, it wasn't. It was the very force and justification, the engine room of colonial thinking, as it were. Mm. And if you want to tackle racism now, you have to talk about how British imperialism was rooted in racism then and uh, the ways in which that enabled certain practices across all sorts of economic types of activity, whether it's sugar plantations in, in, uh, in the Caribbean uh, or, uh, as it were, uh, the, the kind of mercantile imperialism uh, through which the British Empire in India and other parts of Asia uh, kind of emerged. And the ways in which literature and culture registered those things, because that's the important thing. Um, literature and culture didn't just happen in the 19th and 18th century without any kind of relationship to all of this stuff. Um, you know, writers were being paid by patrons who were getting wealthy on the back of this stuff. Um, there was a market in place that was uh, enabled by the dissemination of texts all across the British Empire so that, you know, suddenly British writers wouldn't just get sales in, in, uh, in, in uh, uh, Great Britain. Uh, suddenly there was an enormous market for their texts, you know, um, across the entire of the British Empire. Um, and uh, some canonical British writers, of course, was spread through the education system as well. Uh, so that this whole system of culture is related to the system of colonial uh, uh, governance and uh, economic exploitation. And all of those things are bounded, bound up with racial uh, hierarchies and uh, the ways in which non-white peoples were subordinated. So you can't have a conversation in which that is not spoken about or is just brushed under the carpet. Otherwise, it is a conversation that's actually doomed to fail right from the very beginning. But that is the terms on which we are asked at, the, at this moment now. 
to kind of talk about the British Empire. We're, talk, we're asked to talk about it as something to be proud of, but it, it isn't something to be proud of. It, 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 let's be categorically clear. As we're seeing in Ukraine, this is what imperialism looks like. It looks like a power coming in, destroying another culture and another uh, community. And there was nothing, how should I put it, positive about it for those people who were colonized. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the ideology is that, you know, civilization was spread. Well, that, again, is rooted in the idea that the people that, that were there were uncivilized or savage, and that itself is a racist trope. So you can't disentangle these things at all. Uh, we, we need to acknowledge that, you know, the colonialism, imperialism, is a form of theft, and you're not going to get, uh, you're not going to be able to justify that, really. If you, when you look at that, uh, never mind the slave trade, which is uh, abhorrent in the extreme. And um, how can you talk about culture in that period when that these are the dominant facts of history of that period? Culture doesn't take place in a vacuum. Literature doesn't take place in a vacuum. All of these things are interconnected, and they are uh, the impressions, the way in which they make their impressions on on texts literary texts are are well known um the question is whose voices do we tell you know there are ways in which you don't have to not talk about for instance um and we know this very well you know we can talk about the tempest and we can talk about the ways in which the early colonial voyages are are, are found in the tempest uh, the the kind of uh, nascent motifs um that would soon become dominant motifs 200 years later uh, in, in, you know, in the way in which Caliban is, is, is represented. Mm -hmm. We can see in, um, in 19th century texts such as, for instance, uh, look, just something like Great Expectations, for instance, the, the, the action of which never leaves the British Isles. But who is the benefactor that, uh, that Pip depends on um, for his Great Expectations? It's this convict, Magwitch, who goes off and becomes rich. Where does he become rich? He becomes rich in Australia. Now, mm -hmm. here is an opportunity to now talk about the Australia settler colonial system, which was uh, a system that was basically based around the theft of Aboriginal land of the Aboriginal uh, Australians, their yeah. marginalisation in, in places such as Tasmania, the genocidal extermination of them. Yeah. You cannot talk about great expectations without including that framework. And perhaps that's so. That's where the problem currently lies. Then is it? It's not necessarily that we should be because I think I think the having having been quite new to the profession myself because I've only actually been teaching you know officially since September of last year. Um, but I, I've. I, you know, I've, I've got an I've got an interest, very much an interest in in historical things, and and when I was I was fortunate enough to visit Australia, and I was horrified at how much I didn't know about what happened to the Aboriginal people as a result of the colonisation of Australia and Tasmania, as you've just said, and never had that been mentioned at school. And I'd studied Dickens, I'd studied nineteenth um, century authors, and when I went to school, the curriculum was almost exactly the same as the, the students I'm teaching now. In fact, I don't think the GCSE curriculum has actually changed in terms of the literature that we study. 
And so presumably it was very similar when, you know, my parents went to school and their parents went to school. I don't think it's changed a great deal at all. So is what you're saying, well, again, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, just like, is, is, is the idea that we need a larger section of society or should it be about, if we're going to talk about Dickens or if we're going to study Great Expectations, to use it as an example, should we be more focused on studying the colonial aspect of the novel and not just pretending it didn't exist? Yeah, so well, I think it's both. Uh, it's it's, it's it, there, you, you need a two two handed approach to this. I think yeah. I think first of all, you need to look at the ways in which those texts are studied, and um, you know a lot of the kind of a, a antipathy towards uh, you know people like me in uh, various media and political uh, media outlets or political parties is that uh, we are somehow conceived as being kind of uh, toppling Shakespeare or toppling, you know, we're going to move over Dickens, we're going to replace you with somebody else, you know. Um, incidentally, that's quite a racist trope, by the way. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's called the, uh, replace, the Great Replacement, where this, this uh, idea in the far, on the far right about, about everything white being replaced by everything black or brown. Um, yeah. so, so when people sort of talk about that, you know, that maybe they're not, doing it consciously maybe they are who knows but they are certainly doing it um which is the, you know this art this talk of replacement is you know uh, is plugging into those deep conspiracy theories on the far right and uh you know amongst racists on the far right but we're not doing that what we're doing is we're asking to uh, our educators our fellow educators and our students to look again at those texts and to see how those texts have only been partially explained thus far because if you haven't taken those texts in relation to the colonial and imperial context in which they were produced and uh, unpacked that relationship then you've only told a, a very small part of the story of those texts so that's one thing this is about expanding our knowledge about these canonical texts looking again with fresh eyes from a different perspective uh, one that takes into account all of these historical uh, circumstances uh, and uses the the tools of critique and criticism that we've developed over the last 40 odd years in, in post-colonial studies as it were um, the other side of the equation is to start looking at how to include voices that have been systematically excluded uh, and this is where we are looking at um, texts by racialized minorities texts from different countries whose uh, a relationship to English may be uh, one that's determined by colonialism, but English is nevertheless a very dominant and important language in those countries, whether it's in Australia, where English is the dominant and official uh, language of, the, of, of that uh, of the country, or whether it's somewhere like India, where, India, uh, where English is an official language, not the, the, the main language, but one that is also growing all the time in importance or in Africa, uh, where English was often used as a kind of lingua franca um, to bind nation states along borders that were completely arbitrarily conceived um, in the interests uh, of the colonizing powers. So mm -hmm. these voices have a, a, a different side of the story to tell. Yes, even if you unpack the kind of uh, ideological underpinnings or uh, 
unspoken assumptions of some of these canonical texts. Even if you do that, you still are only telling part of the story. The other side of the story are those people who experience colonialism from the other side of the, uh, the fence. Uh, cultures and communities that had a very, very different experience of the last 250, 300 years. Writers from those communities who are trying to explain the still persistent legacies of that experience, even now today, who are trying to work through what it means to be black and British, for instance, um, what it means to be a British Asian, what it means to be coming from a country that uh, was once seen as being inferior and its entire culture. You, you know, going back to Macaulay and that 1835, uh, uh, what's called the Minute on Education, uh, there is a line in that which I've never forgotten for the sheer arrogance of it, which is that, um, and Macaulay says, you know, I've done what I can. I don't know. He says, he says I don't know Sanskrit or Arabic but I've done what I can to make a reasonable estimation of their worth. And I have consulted every single Orientalist. Uh, I, in other words, he's consulted Western European experts on those, mm -hmm. uh, on those literatures, not the people themselves who produce those literatures. And he then goes on to conclude, not one of them has been able to disprove to me that a single shelf of a good European li library is not worth more than the entire literatures of Arabia and Asia. Which is incredibly arrogant, isn't it? What can you say about that? I mean, and not only, you know, if, if he actually read Sanskrit or if he read Arabic and if he read all of these literatures himself mm. and then came up with that opinion, perhaps, maybe, you just about say, well, that's his opinion, but it's grounded on something. But no. It's just a, a kind of a lofty disdain for the rest of the world. What yeah, a fundamental belief that of, of the superiority of the English language and the English culture over all others. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so now, what does it? What? What? What can the stories from those cultures tell us otherwise about the experience of that of the last two hundred thirty three hundred years? Um, those stories need to be included. Um, and decolonization is about opening up. It's not about closing down. It's about opening up conversations. And what is being closed down is a, uh, is a frank reckoning with those conversations, a frank reckoning with those literatures that can tell us more about what happened. Because yes, you could read Kipling and you could find Kipling talking about all these heroic British soldiers and surveyors and engineers and so on, uh, building railways and stuff and think, oh, yes, you know, we gave railways to the Indians and to the Africans and so on. Mm. But Kipling never actually really says what, what they're for. Uh, we, we, those, those, those railways were there to expedite the transport of soldiers to effectively keep down rebellions, which were endemic during during the uh, colonial kind of uh, period throughout the British Empire. Um, so, you know, this sort of idea that the natives were sort of passively accepted British rule is also needs to be reckoned with. And you can find that active agency against imperial rule in the stories of the people who were subject to it. So mm -hmm. 
this also needs to be part of the conversation. And it is about opening up the world to its many forms and varieties of experience, not just seeing the world through the lens of one particular corner of one continent uh, that, that's perched on the edge of the great Eurasian landmass. It is about seeing the world through its very many different lenses. And decolonization ultimately requires a lot of labor. It requires the work to understand where those stories are coming from, why they're being told in that particular way, what cultural resource are they drawing upon, what are the kind of ways in which they are trying to narrativize uh, the, the, the experience of a people, uh, and so on. For me, I find that incredibly exciting. I don't find it uncomfortable at all. I find it challenging and daunting. Mm. Of course, you know, it means actually learning about other people and listening to what they have to say. Um, but if you like listening to people and if you like hearing from people who are not like you, it's a wonderful, wonderful journey to be on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've covered a, a huge amount there and I, I've, I've scribbled down a lot of questions based on what you've just talked about. If um, What I need to do though is if we can just pause briefly, um, I need to play the news for today and there's a few adverts on there. So um, if I, if uh, I'll just get that played and then we'll rejoin and carry on the conversation. Thank you very much so far. Thank you. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cat. To find out more, Follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondlelettersandsounds.org.uk Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure that Bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. Introducing Autism Aspirational Futures, a virtual SEN conference for parents and carers. Do you work with parents or carers of students with autism? If so, this free virtual conference from Witherslack Group can support them and you. Providing inspiring talks from leading experts, offering practical advice on supporting children and young people with autism and associated needs. 
this very special event will take place during Autism Acceptance Week and is sure to be an enjoyable occasion for everyone wanting to develop their knowledge, understanding and celebrate their children's amazing superpowers. Don't miss out! Register for free at witherslackgroup.co.uk today. Witherslack Group, the leading provider of schools and children's homes for children with special educational needs. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. In Scotland, the leader of the country's largest teaching union is to step down from the post in the summer after a decade in the role. Larry Flanagan said it had been an honour to lead the Education Institute of Scotland as its General Secretary. Mr Flanagan has been in the role since 2012, but, according to an article in the TES website, has retained his status as a registered teacher throughout his tenure. Mr Flanagan has not ruled out a return to the classroom. In a statement about his resignation, he said he remained deeply convinced about the strength of our education system and the quality and professionalism of our education workforce. He went on to praise the response of Scotland's teachers and lecturers to challenges of the pandemic. EIS President Heather Hughes described Mr Flanagan as a great servant to Scotland's teaching professionals and a very hard act to follow. The process of recruiting the EIS next General Secretary has already begun. In Wales, Plaid Cymru's leader has announced a pledge that all councils led by the party will aim to offer free school meals to all secondary pupils within five years. Free meals are already being extended to all children in primary education under a cooperation agreement with Labour. Plaid Cymru's leader, Alan Price, will tell the party's spring conference, we will begin to create a Wales free of hunger and poverty. The rollout of the £200 million Universal Free School Meals programme for primary pupils is expected to start in September this year, according to a BBC report. The Independent reports that Ofsted will judge schools' curriculums based on their 2022 SATs and GCSE results. The Department for Education said it will not publish Key Stage 2 SATs in league tables, but it will produce its normal accountability measures to be shared with schools, local authorities and academy trusts to inform school improvement. The DfE added that it will give the data to Ofsted to inform inspections accurately, under the Quality of Education judgment, for example, on the impact of curriculum designs. Additional guidance suggests inspectors will be aware that the 2021-22 data is not comparable with other years. League tables will be published for the Key Stage 4 results at GCSE, and these will also enable Ofsted to make judgments on school curriculum performance. The news comes after a study by YouGov UK revealed that many Year 6 pupils are worried about taking SATs because they were nervous of failure, and found exams scary. In South Africa, work is being undertaken to reduce school dropout rates, according to a report in the Daily Maverick. It reports on a panel discussion at the Constitution Hill Human Rights Festival held last weekend, which focused on the school dropout rates, already high before the pandemic, of around one in four learners dropping out before graduation. The Zero Dropout campaign wants to change perceptions about the causes, introduce prevention strategies and reduce the chances of students dropping out by providing safe and stimulating education environments. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio Weekend News with Joe Fox.
This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to look at technology and supporting us getting lunch. Why? Because I asked every teacher I met last week if they had lunch regularly, and most of them said no. The reason being, they're too busy most days. Now, right off the bat, I'm not going to discuss any types of diet. This is just about getting lunch. Simple ways to get calories in to power the body. As always, I've tested these things out for you and added my humble opinion. First, I'm at zero extra cost using the technology of the freezer. You can freeze a sandwich. I quite like this idea as it stopped me eating a sandwich in the car on the way to a school. If I know a sandwich is there, it calls to me. Calls to me. Calls. It being frozen meant I had to wait. The downside is making the sandwich. However, throwing 10 slices of bread down, adding filling and then into a Ziploc bag would be quite easy on a Sunday evening. You might need quite a bit of space in your freezer though. Next, I used the trusty thermos mug and noodles. I thought it was a good idea, but unlike a sandwich that you can eat on the go, I needed a fork and then had to consider not dripping it on my tie, so I actually had to stop and eat. So not as simple as a frozen sandwich, but I did have a hot lunch. Now hold on to your hats. I tried this again. I did enjoy a hot lunch, so I smashed the noodles up before I put the water in the second time around. That day, I drank my lunch. No need to find a fork, lid off, quick swig of noodles, genius. The downside I can see is washing the mug. I know I'll find it on the draining board waiting to be washed when I want to get out the door. Finally, I tried a snack bar. You can get these quite cheap online and you can find them to match most dietary needs. It was definitely the easiest option, but would be the most expensive over time. For me, it didn't feel as lunch-like, if I was being totally honest, but it did the job of rapid calorie input on the go. So, in conclusion, if you're not having lunch, why not try one of these ideas? You will definitely feel better for it. P.S. I googled International Lunch Day and it actually exists. However, it's on the 10th of March, so we've missed it. Gutted. As always, don't forget to check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. Tell us what you have for your lunch. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, and we're back with um, Anjuman Mondal from uh, University of East Anglia, and we're talking about um, diversity and decolonizing in the English uh, curriculum, specifically um, from a higher education perspective, and and how that can have an impact on primary and secondary teaching in the UK. So. Um, Anshu, we were talking before the, the break about um, sort of the, 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 the impact um, that colonialization has had on the curriculum as we understand it at the moment with the choice of literature and, and the fact that we're not currently getting the full picture because we're not studying the literature in, in the right way and with, with sort of the right lens, if you like. Um, so given that the... I suppose the curriculum is what it is and unless it changes drastically um <laughs> you know in the next few years you know what what do we actually what what do you think needs to happen to actually make that change because you've you've made it quite clear that there's obviously a momentum for change because more and more people upcoming teachers are interested in um having a, a wider you know a, a wider perspective and more voices in the literature that we study in school and yet the the Department for Education, if, if that's who makes the decisions, they are consistently coming with the same authors year after year after year. So what needs to change then if we're going to see a genuine decolonization of the English, of the discipline of English? 
Yes, it goes back to my, my point that um, that uh, secondary and primary level, your room for manoeuvre is much uh, much less than, than, than we have in higher education. I think, uh, as was the case with us um, uh, some 20 years ago, you need to take whatever opportunities there are, whether, you know, whether it's uh, optionality of some kind, or, you know, some kind of discretion uh, to, to introduce texts that, uh, that, that uh, tell a different story or that, that, that include perspectives from others who are not um, already very well represented within the can canonical texts that we have. Um, and that is the tactic that we, we used early early in the uh, sort of emergence of post-colonial studies, as it were. Um, but that will only take you so far. Really, what decolonization draws draws us to, uh, as opposed to diversification, is the structure, the underlying structure within which any of these things happen, whether it's, you know, the writing of texts or whether it's the reading and learning from texts. It's, it, it, it is about overhauling structures. If, you, if that structure isn't allowing these other voices, these other perspectives to emerge, then it's the structure that needs to be changed, and that is far, far, far more difficult. Um, mm. Even now here in, in higher education, um, one of the key problems is still uh, that core modules often tend to be very Eurocentric, not even Eurocentric, very national-centric. Um, uh, and the problem there, of course, is that Britain's history has never been national. It's, all, it's been global for hundreds of mm. years, you know. Yeah. So uh, how can you tell the story of Britain, never mind tell the story of its empire, when, it, when, you, when the framework that you've got is very national? Well, is is that does that if sorry to interrupt you, but is, is that a hark back to that arrogance that we've had that if we're if we, we consider things on a national level, regardless of we're talking about international perspectives, you know, so so it, we, we might be considering, um, you know, other countries that are part of our empire, but because they are part of the empire, we just consider them all coming under the banner of Britain. Um, I think I think it's I think it may be you know I think there is an underlying uh, element of that, but I think it's actually paradoxically I think it's parochialism. I think uh, I think it's a sense in which Britain kind of as you said it, you, when you when you were growing up when I was growing up you know schools didn't really teach British school kids know far less about their empire than school kids in any of the other countries that were part of the empire. Yeah, um, and um, part of it is denial. Part of it is uh, a kind of unwillingness to even go there and to, 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 to open, as it were, open the lid, as mm. it were, and, and see what's in there. Um, uh, and part of it is just comfort, the comfort mm. of having done this in, in, in ways that have always been done. Um, and one of the things about decolonization, well, I guess one of the things that really scares people about decolonization of the curriculum and of, of English studies as a discipline is it is, re it is actually uncomfortable. And if it's not uncomfortable, it's not doing the job. Um, it, so we need to have those difficult and uncomfortable conversations. It is part of discomfort, it's part of this whole journey. Yeah. Um, we need to, to start to think about how we come out of this comfort zone um it's going to be tough kaylee i just 
I, you know, I have no kind of illusions about this. I've been, I've been kind of, as it were, thinking about this stuff for twenty odd years. Yeah. Uh, we have a moment now, and it's, it, it's things are, are accelerating, but there's lots of little things that just get in the way. Workload mean that you know people who are the best win in the will in the world can't do the work that's necessary for if, if you if you've got if your workload is coming out of your ears which it is i know it is in in secondary and primary education for teachers uh, and it is for higher education teachers as well uh how are you going to do it? it it's hard uh, you can't just slap in a text by somebody or other um and just just teach it off the bat you need to actually yeah. do the do the legwork to learn about the culture from which it comes or the perspective from which it's written the historical circumstances within which it was embedded that's going to be really tough um yes. you know none of us have that much time available um so it really does need people in leadership positions to take the uh the the, the agenda by the scruff of the neck to really as it were push things through and say we have to do this it really helps when students as in our experience tell us we have to do better because students in higher education because of the market in higher education have an extremely strong voice um, i'm not sure if that is the case in secondary and primary education um, uh, so if you don't have that sort of arena of support then it's going to be even more difficult but really it we shouldn't be any under under any illusion. This is a very long game. It's going to take a long, long time. Yeah. Um, I am, you know, if you can get some writers in as part of whatever kind of latitude you have, then that's great and it's a great start. Um, I know that there are uh, unofficial um, resources available, like the Black Curriculum and so on which uh, offer great resources uh, for, for teachers, which, which, uh, which, which, are, which are fantastic. Um, and in some ways, actually, those, these, uh, these um, resources, these kind of informal networks of educators who are trying to offer something beyond the curriculum is a, is a throwback to the early years, actually, of migration, of, uh, of post-war migration uh, of uh, communities, Afro-Caribbean, African, Asian communities, forced to kind of, as it were, turn to their own initiatives in order to supplement the, the, uh, the, the, the education that their kids were not getting at school. Yeah. Um, and in the 60s and 70s, you know, you had you had lots of, of these kind of groups, these education networks that, that, that would that would provide some um, uh, some, you know, uh, sort of under the auspices of black pride or black black power, um, alternative histories of people from of African descent and so on. Um, so the, in, in, in some ways, this is a throwback uh, to those times. But isn't it sad that, you know, some 60 years later, we're having to still do this? And, um, uh, it, you know, it feels like nothing has changed very much uh, over that time, which, going back to your question, is, you know, just throws the whole thing into, into relief as to how difficult it's going to be. Yeah. The entire weight of the establishment is pitched against this, um, and it's not going to be easy. 
Yeah, because the the establishment, as it were, has not changed <laughs> almost since its inception, has it? You know, we've we've modernized to allow for. I mean, I suppose it was it was probably considered a, a huge shift just when we allowed women into mainstream education. Um, and then, of course, there was the st- you know the, the the state school education um, and and actually offering that um, sort of. Uh, you know, it, I'm trying to think of the best way of phrasing it, but you know, that foundation of education to make sure everyone had access to it. Um, but in terms of the actual delivery and content, it's probably not changed a great deal at all in the last however many years. So, um, I, I, I don't, I don't, if what, I'm being absolutely honest, I don't see any reason why these, uh, I don't see any. In- the, the, the establishment doesn't have an interest in, in, in pursuing this because it, 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 the whole point is to upset the apple cart. Um, mm-hmm. but the apple cart is the establishment, you know. And yeah. uh, we, I think we will be waiting a long time if, we, you know, Pat, things have never changed because somebody up at the top has decided, oh, for the, you know, out of moral reasons. Uh, we're, yeah. gonna, we're, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna you know, throw you know throw some crumbs down to the to the people below. That's never happened. It's always because of agitation from below. Um, mm. You know, Britain loves to tell this story to itself about how it abolished the slave trade and so on. And uh, I don't want to belittle or uh, disparage the efforts of. Um, of abolitionists here, you know, people like William Wilberforce and so on. They, they, you know, I don't want to do that. But at the same time, let's be honest, there were former slaves and slaves and slave rebellions and slave uh, agitations, which uh, were absolutely fundamental and instrumental to the abolition of the slave trade and eventually emancipation in 1835. Because remember, another story that that, um, that Britain likes to tell itself is, is that it ended the slave trade. Well, it, it, it took another 25 years for slavery itself to be abolished. Uh, and, yeah. uh, and when it was abolished, the uh, Britain borrowed money to pay the slave owners 20 million pounds, a debt in, in that time, in 1835, 20 million pounds was such an enormous figure that it was only paid off in 2012, I think it was. I heard that. Uh, I was absolutely gobsmacked by that. I can't believe it. <coughs> I know. I mean, again, it's part of the story that never gets told. Mm. Um, so what, what, what possible reason or motive would the establishment have in, in kind of, as it were, Peering under the under the under the stones and uh, and looking at what what's, what's crawling around in uh, uh, under there, um, and there are times when I feel very pessimistic. I'll be honest. There are times when I feel very pessimistic. You know, I, I did this this uh, this quote, the, this this the fact that I pointed out about the, the you know the uh, self education black self education in, in the nineteen sixties. And the fact that we're having to do it again in two, 2022 mm. uh, is, 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 it can be very depressing. On the other hand, I, I, think about my, I think about that young lad who went into a lecture theatre in Edinburgh in 1994, uh, 
his mind was literally blown away uh, by what he heard, which was one, one, one of my lecturers taking it upon himself to explain a, a very important book in the field that had emerged to us. Yeah. That set me off on a journey to where I am now. Mm -hmm. And if black and Asian kids can see themselves reflected back in the texts that they that they um, that they read, not in every single text, of course not, because that would also be self-defeating. That would be colouring the entire palette in a different colour that would also uh, undermine the decolonizing agenda, which is, you know, yeah, many, yeah. many blooms spread, uh, uh, blossom at once. Um, but if they can see some reflection of themselves and their experience mm. and their historical background and the places where their yeah, families came yeah, from, yeah. they too might see a pathway open up for them yeah and you know we can go on and on about educational inequality and they are educational inequality is absolutely pivotal to the ways in which racial inequality still persists in society but yeah. if we don't do something about it in the educational setting it's gonna it's gonna persist no matter what um, and we need to change that narrative. We need to say to these young uh, boys and girls, look, here you are, and this is what people like you can do and can achieve. And let's mm. face it, there are some brilliant writers out there. In fact, I would wager that, that some of the very, very best right now are people of racialized minority background. Um, and there's just so much to be learned from these writers yeah. and from these texts. Um, and not just for these black or minor, racialized minority kids, but for the other kids too, who might actually learn something. And I think that that's, that's one of the big problems with, uh, with where we are at. And yeah. that's one of the big things that decolonizing is trying to, yeah. to kind of overthrow, is there is actually a lot to be learned from other people, from other parts of the world. You know, we don't have and, answers and, here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and and what you're saying rings so true because, um, you know, we're, we're doing the uh, uh, poetry. Uh, one of the uh, subjects I'm teaching at the moment is I'm doing the poetry anthology with my year 10s. And so when we're, we, we get onto the poems, which are written by um, poets from different cultures to the to the students sat in front of me, because my, I, I teach at school, um, in Cumbria and so we, we do not have a lot of racial diversity where we are. Um, the school is probably 98, 99% white British students. So, but, but even when you are, um, you introduce them to something that is different from what they know and what they understand, the level of interest and the engagement is incredible. Mm. Um, and, and I think that that is almost an untapped resource in itself because the students are more than willing if, if not, you know, completely open to um, engaging with texts, literature, conversations, stories, whatever it might be, from a perspective that's completely unique and, and that they've never heard of before. And I think it's, it's, it's fascinating to see that there's, there is very, there is little to no resistance on the part of the students. It comes from, as you say, higher up whether that's the culture of the school or the, the structure of the various 
government departments that are making the decisions about the curriculum. I think that's really fascinating to hear. And I'm no ed- expert on education, um, uh, pedagogy and, and, and methods and so on. But, um, you know, there's, there's something in literature which we call um, defamiliarization. One of the things that makes something literary is it, it estranges us from, from our kind of uh, customary habits of, of perception. Yeah. Um, it makes us see things in a new way. Um, it, it defamiliarizes what we take to be familiar. Um, and I, one of, for me, one of the uh, one of the biggest obstacles of educational learning for anybody is, is boredom, and boredom comes from too much familiarity, too much uh, the desensitization that that comes from seeing the same old, same old things all the time, yeah. experiencing the same old things. So that when you put something different in front of people, in front of kids, there is going to be a kind of, you know, Ezra Pound called it the shock of the new, as it were, yeah. and that those moments can be absolutely priceless. In you know, in my classroom setting, when I get students and they're, they're looking at something and they are thinking, how, what, what, you know, how yeah. do I make sense of this? It's yeah. a moment. It's an opportunity. You can open up the universe a little bit and say here's something different for you to look at. And I find them, like you, my students really respond so brilliantly to those moments. Yeah. Um, well, and, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased, you know, I'm really pleased to hear that. Yeah, great. Well, because uh, one of the things that I've, I've found is that you, you have to try quite hard to get them to, to relate to an author like Dickens because they can recognise what he's talking about in the sense of the setting and you know they're familiar with it in that respect but it's from a time that's completely irrelevant to them in many ways whereas if you give them something that is mod- more modern day but yet completely different to their own experience they are they are straight away want to know more that that's been my experience of of the classroom so far in that in that respect mm. um, and i had a, an experience recently which again, I think it comes back to this idea of what you were saying about free speech. Um, I gave them uh, Simon Armitage, the poet laureate, has, has recently released a poem um, which was called Resistance, and it's quite clearly inspired by the conflict in Ukraine at the moment. Um, doesn't doesn't name the Ukraine, but obviously it's um, it, it, you know it's very thematic for what's going on at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and the students absolutely loved it. And it, it, it was a great tool for me because it, it completely um, changed their perspective of poetry up until that point, because they obviously dreaded doing the poetry unit because they've been, I don't know, trained to believe that poetry is awful. Um, but uh, it, it, re- it really fired them up. However, one of the concerns that I had was straight away they were on the side of Ukraine and a lot of the students were, were coming out with anti-Russian rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, that's because they've heard that on the news. That's because that's the narrative that's being publicised. And, and of course, I think we can, we can agree that Russia is the aggressor. But at the same time, it's not the entire Russian population that are supporting the attack in Ukraine, and and of course, it, you know, I, I did spend a bit of time talking to them about, you know, we've we've got to 
to get some perspective on what we're told. We've got we can't just go on what we are told. We have to look into and make our own decisions and do our own research. Um, and that led to very interesting conversations then about you know, how, how are the Russian people feeling about this conflict versus how, of course, how are the, how are people in the Ukraine feeling about it as well? Um, and that Russia's more than just Putin and the government, <laughs> you know, yes. there's, there's, there's much more to it than that. Um, so when we're getting onto this idea of free speech, you know, what are the, what are the difficulties in the classroom really with, with, with combating what we're being told is the right thing to say and the right thing to think versus actually being able to have a conversation with the students that said, well, we, we need to think about this from both points of view, even if one point of view is unpopular. You know, how, how do yeah. we tackle that? Well, this is, this, is, this is where you need to have the tool. This is uh, one of the ways in which decolonizing uh, kind of approaches this um, is to point out that colonial rhetoric operates, as I said earlier, um, uh, through the kind of, as it were, group stereotyping, through uh, the term that we use in higher education is uh, essentialism, which is the kind of uh, attribution of a few essential characteristics that are the basis of stereotypes of entire groups of, of populations of people. You know, uh, things like Africans are, are lazy and savage and so on and so forth, or Chinese are untrustworthy and so on. You know, the, yeah. these, these were so kind of prevalent um, uh, it, within popular culture, within high culture, through, throughout the whole of society. Um, and, and one of the things that we've done over the many, many years of, of uh, 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 you know, the 30, 40 years that post-colonial studies has been operating has been to kind of subject those ways of thinking about others uh, to critical scrutiny and to kind of tease them apart and say does this hold up you know or how, you know and that students need to be taught how to do that uh, how to talk about others in a way that is um, uh, doesn't lapse into these kind of generalizations and stereotypes um, uh, the, the, the us and then narrative and, and kind of broad brush sort of uh, brush strokes which paints an entire kind of culture or civilization as being one thing and another mm. culture and civilization as being another. Um, and, uh, you know, the internal differentiation and variety within any society and so on is, 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 is astounding when you look at it and, and, uh, uh, and examine any given society. And it is precisely so that we don't continue to use those habits of thought that, that we need actually people to be more what we, we would say racially literate um the problem when we start talking about and, and i've experienced it in the classroom it when somebody starts talking about um other cultures in ways perhaps they don't even realize are yeah. racially de derogatory or um are, are are offensive to those cultures or those peoples um and it's difficult it's absolutely it's, it's very very difficult but i think that you've got to start with the 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 the, the, the starting point has to be that um the derogatory element of that the, the the element in which one culture or society or people is assumed to be inferior is not 
a, a legitimate part of the discussion. And that can be closed off, I think, in, mm. because that is the basis on which you're going to get the respect for uh, that other culture or that other people. Um, if you, in the name of free speech, allow that to be a, a kind of legitimate point of, uh, of discussion, then what you're doing is you're hijacking the discussion already and putting it onto terrain which is predisposed towards uh, reproducing uh, racialized thinking um, and, and racial hierarchies and so on. You're self-defeating yourself. Yeah. There. So you've got, there are, have to be limits. And I think one of the very exasperating things about the discussion about free speech is the way in which it's pretended that there, there ought to be no limits. But there are limits all the time, all the time. Of course. You, know, you, you wouldn't say things to certain people in certain contexts, uh, whether it's part of the law or not, you know, yeah. uh, you wouldn't you, you wouldn't try to make an offensively funny um, joke about a person who's died to their to their to their bereaved family at a, at a, mm. at a funeral, for instance. Just not, uh, it's just not appropriate, and that's a limit. That's a limit on discourse. Actually, if you want to get really philosophical about it, you know. Uh, Without these limits, the actual shape of what you say makes no sense because it just you know, anything can mean anything. So yeah. you have to have limits in order for meaning to actually take place. Um, and those limits are the basis of social discourse. So you can, this, this kind of rhetoric about, you know, everything has to be open. It's just not true. It's a pretense. It's a pretense in order to just actually let people kind of um, it's actually a pretense to, to le legitimise racism once again, in, in my view, and I, I'm writing a book about that at the moment. But mm -hmm. that's 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 a, a, a side point for the, for what we're saying now. If you if you begin a discussion in the classroom in which it is taken for granted that the people are, that you are talking about are inferior to you, that's colonial thinking, and that is the. Uh, whether it's British colonial thinking or whether it's Russian colonial thinking or whether it's, you know, uh, American, it, that is the way in which imperialism works. And that is how it justifies its conquests and so on. Yeah. And uh, uh, you can't allow that to be the starting point of the discussion. So you have to find a way of changing it to a different You have way. to address that, yeah. yeah. But I suppose the, I, com I completely accept what you're saying because that, that there has got to be an accepted appropriateness of what we say um otherwise you you are it is just a license to say whatever you want regardless of of, of the impact that your words will have on people mm. um and of course any scholar of language you know you don't have to be particularly experienced in in that to, to know that words have a great deal of power and you know they shape the way we think they they shape everything about us you know, who, we who, we were, I, what I we say is who we yeah. are, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> People wouldn't spend thousands and thousands of pounds going to university to study of course. If, they, of, if, of, if they didn't, you know. Exactly, of course. So, but I suppose the, the other side of that argument is that that that, that should, should there still need to be, I suppose, when you say if, if somebody sits down in a classroom and they start talking in such a way that, you know, you think immediately um, there's, there's, there's an issue here with, with, something that they believe but as what you said just just before was that they don't even realize that what they're saying is 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 um you know colonialist thinking that because they've been that's the culture they've been raised in you know that that's what their parents and their grandparents have, have and and so on and so forth have, have 
raise them to believe. So in the name of education, there surely needs to be, you know, um, sort of getting, getting, reducing this sort of cancel culture in the way, in, in the way that if somebody says something that is potentially offensive or is, is potentially derogatory, it shouldn't automatically be assumed that that person is, is being racist. You know, the, 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 would you would you say that there still needs to be a, a an, an, an like an, an area of sort of not a grey area if you know what I mean but but mm-hmm. the ability to have that conversation and educate that person before we automatically make assumptions and sort of you know create that divide between yeah. the people who think the right thing and the people who think the wrong thing. Uh, absolutely, this is an educational setting we're talking about, so education has to be the priority, yeah. and uh, you. Uh, point out rightly it depends on what they who, why they're saying it yeah you know if they are saying it in order to provoke and in order to cause trouble and in order to maybe you know actually pick on somebody who's who may be from a different culture in that in that classroom and to actually bully them or to or to shame them or to or, or whatever then i think that you have got every right to be able to step in and say that is not acceptable yeah um but if they are reproducing tropes and reproducing structures of thinking that they have just absorbed from a, a, a wider society, and and you know this is part of education, is to kind of as it were probe that. Why are you saying that? What's the basis on which you're saying that? Um, it's an opportunity. It's an educational opportunity, isn't it, for a teacher at that point to say, right, let's have a look. Let's have, let's let's think about what you're saying here, um, and to get them to think about what they're saying and why they're saying it and to look at it in a different way and, and perhaps for them to just see that the ways in which that they're talking about might have certain assumptions built into it or coded into it that they hadn't even thought of before. And that is the edu- that, that is the teacher's uh, mission, I guess. Mm. Uh, you know, I feel it in my classroom and I'm sure you, you're and your colleagues will hope you know will undoubtedly feel that that is your that is that is why you're in the in the profession in the first place mm, yeah is it, to be able to change that mind is to be able to say look what you've just said what, what what's going on there what what do you what why do you think that and what's going and then to you know you're not shutting them up you're not silencing them you are asking them to think again and you are asking them to say look at these assumptions that may be maybe at work in you what you're saying yeah and then you're asking them to think well is that okay and you have to lead that student out of that particular uh way of thinking and that's why decolonizing the classroom is about thinking is not about somebody telling other people what to think it is about uh, enabling conversations that are not being had and you Mm. can't have those conversations if you don't actually you know in a way, you are calling it out, but you're calling it out in a very gentle way, sensitively appraising exactly why that student has, has uh, said what they've said. Um, it's very, very different from a racist agitator, sort of just now. Yes, yeah. In, in order, you know, uh, uh, at which point, you know, you can call it out in, in, you know, much blunter terms, and that's fine. Mm, yeah. So, yeah, it is education, isn't it? And that's what we're talking about today. Absolutely. And and I think we, but I think the, the adults also need to extend that logic to their fellow adults as well. It's almost like, you know, we allow it to a certain extent with 
students because they're young, they're children, and mm. you know we're there to educate them. Um, but I think just speaking from my own personal experience, you know, we the vast the vast majority of you know I think it's a fair point to say that the vast majority of educators in the UK are British. Um, you know, possibly. I don't know the exact figures, so I, I can't speak with any authority, but I would say a, a significant proportion are white British. And so they will have been raised with these tropes and these stereotypes, and that's that will have been part of their growing up as well. And so the, the, the onus, I suppose, has to be on the individual adult, whether you are a teacher or, or not, to educate yourself about about these things and, and why these things are unacceptable or, or, or how our thinking might have been shaped by them um, and this is probably a conversation well it's definitely a conversation for another day because we have, <laughs> it would take it would probably be another show again but yeah. when you're coming from a when you're teaching from obviously from the viewpoint of a white British person um, if you haven't got that background educate you know knowledge of other cultures it, it's it's very difficult to call out behavior because it might be that you miss it because it, it doesn't stand out to you as being anything you know particularly inappropriate but also there is a fear of getting it wrong saying the wrong thing and and I've certainly felt that because you've wanted to do something about it but you're not quite sure yeah. ironically what language to use in, in order to correct it of course yeah. and this is this is why knowledge is power here in this yeah. in this instance um you it, the fear comes from the lack of empowerment in that scenario. Um, if you knew why it was inappropriate, and if you could, if you knew that you you knew how to address that in a way that is a uh, will open up the dialogue, so as to change mm. in terms of engagement, you wouldn't feel that fear, um, and the the fear is uh, you know it's always based around that lack of knowledge um and, and as i say as i said earlier it's a lot it's a hard hard thing to do when you have your daily life is up to here with marking and preparing lessons and uh, other administrative tasks and so on to take on the labour of actually learning about all of this stuff on top. And I'm not going to pretend otherwise. Everybody needs to know that this is going to be tough. Yeah. But I have, a, I have you know, I have, there's a, an American poet called Claudia Rankine who, in a, in a debate about, you know, cultural appropriation, um, you know, certain white writers had got you know in a tears about why why it was that they were they felt that they weren't allowed to talk about you know non-white characters and, um, and, that, and that they had every right to talk about it, whatever they wanted. And, and Rankin says, yes, you have every right to talk about everybody, yeah, whatever you want. But have you done the work? Have you, you know, at which point your right to talk about it then becomes. Uh, empowered um, but if you talk about anything this that and anything without actually doing the work whatever your rights are you're not doing the right thing you're not um, you're not 
using your ability to write or your ability to speak uh, the platforms that you have in 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 the, in the in the in the right way, and that needs to be pointed out. It's not it's not censorship to say, yeah, but have you done the work? Have you really? Do you know yeah. what you're talking about? Um, that's not censorship. Um, that is legitimate critique, and um, it is a you you need to think about the work the work that's involved in trying to inhabit another person's world. That is what decolonization is asking. Can we see the world differently from a different perspective? Can we inhabit other people's shoes? Try, just try to imagine what their lives are like. Um, we can't just do that and assume that we can do it just because we are we and you know we we're accustomed to everybody listening to what we say um, which is unfortunately the kind of default setting in in, in america and, and the west if you like you know this is how it is according to us and that's how it should be according to you that's the, that seems to be the the, the mindset um but actually to to, to to dismantle that and to say you know maybe Maybe I can stand where you are and think how you feel. Uh, think how you think and feel how you feel. You can't just do that. You have to do the work. You have to find out what it means to feel like that, what it means to think like them, how it is possible to think like what what frameworks of knowledge are they bringing to that. Uh, it's, and and it, again, it, it goes back to, to, to this uh, idea of learning from others. Uh, learning some differently, but learning is the key thing, you know. So even as educators, we have to be constantly learning. We have to be constantly thinking about what is it, what are our blind spots? What don't we know yet? Uh, yeah. And how, how can we address that? Fantastic. Well, I was going to ask you as a final question to the show what advice you would give, but I, uh, to to educators um, who who have an interest in in this aspect of teaching but I think you've just summarized it perfectly <laughs> I don't think there's anything we need to anything further we need to add to that so um, we're actually at the end of the show now and it's gone by in a blink so thank you so much um, for such an interesting conversation and everything you've said has, has really resonated and I'm sure it will have done with, with a lot of listeners as well. Um, well. Thank you for giving me this opportunity it's very rare to be able to speak at such length um, and uh, <laughs> you know I, uh, I I've really enjoyed it thank you. Good. Well, you're more than welcome and I'm, I'm very glad that you've enjoyed it. So thank you very much for joining us this evening and enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you very much. Thank okay. You. Take care now. All the best. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.